Thank you, Becky. Um, good morning, everyone. I just want to take a second to acknowledge uh, the two women that were just up here on the stage. Becky, if you didn't know, um, provides some leadership not only in her missional community, but uh, helps to oversee and keep our eyes focused on prayer as a church. And Abby, yes, you heard right, has taken over leadership of, uh, of our missions team. Um, Paul Hildebrand, who was previously leading, and Abby was um, working alongside him. Paul has stepped back, and Abby has stepped into leadership of that team, and we're excited about that. Uh, so, two women providing some um, just excellent uh, care to some important aspects of life within Church of the City that I'm incredibly grateful for. So, if you have questions about, yeah, if you have... If you have questions for, uh, about any of those things, about prayer at our church or missions, uh, you uh, are more than welcome to talk to them. They would love that. Um, and it's not Abby Newman anymore, folks. It's Abby Strom. Uh, just don't forget that. So um, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, we are continuing on in our vision series, as Ryan said. Specifically this morning, we're continuing in this conversation around our values as a church. This conversation, or this part of the conversation that Mike uh, opened up for us last week. And as we explore our values, we're asking questions like, why at Church of the City do we do things this way and not that way? Why do we uh, prioritize these things and not these things? Why are these, uh, these ideas, these concepts, why do they keep coming up in conversation? Why do they seem to be a part of everything, all of the fabric of Church of the City? These are what values are. These are what they do. And that, in part, friends, is why we're spending so much time in this vision series. If you've been around Church of the City for a number of years, you know we do this every fall, but this year we're camping out here longer than we have in a long time because we believe that we're setting some vision, some direction, we're getting our bearings for the next season of ministry uh, in our church. And so we want to be on the same page as we do that. So we're spending some extra time here. We're setting our course, we think, we hope, we believe, for years to come. Amen? So last week, as I said, Mike introduced this new part of our vision series focused on our values, and he began with this value, that we at Church of the City value life by God's word. And we explained that a little further by saying we orient our lives and ministry by the truth of Scripture. That was our first value. Number two that we're going to look at this morning is this. We value a life of persistent worship. A life of persistent worship. And we say this, we seek God intentionally in our own lives and together. So I thought it would be good to begin as we uh, try and understand this, get ourselves on the same page. It would be good to begin by sort of defining the terms that we've used here, okay? So let's start with worship. If you have been a follower of Jesus for a number of years, you know that this word worship is one of those ones that in Christian circles gets used a lot, and if you pay attention, you realize it gets used in a whole myriad of different ways, right? People are saying very different things at times when they use this word worship. 
So what does it mean? What do the scriptures say? After all, we want to orient our lives and ministry by the truth of scripture. You see what I did there? That was the value from last week. Um, what do the scriptures point to as this idea of worship? What is the picture that we get from the Bible? At its most general, it's, it's the, the, the big picture, this word worship means this. The odd response, and as Mike did last week, I need to spell this, odd, I think it's on the screen, A-W-E-D, not O-D-D. Mike had one of those last week where he needed to clarify which version of the word he was looking or saying. Go back and listen to last week if you, if you missed it. The odd response, full of awe and wonder, to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. The odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. But this response, as we look at the scriptures, there's sort of two ways that it happens. This response to who God is and what he's done. The first is this. Our worship is our whole lives given over to God. I mean, that's the truly, uh, uh, that's the right response to who God is and what he has done. Amen? That it's our whole lives given over to him. That's our act of worship. But also, in addition to that in the scriptures, we see another definition of worship, if you will, and it's tangible actions, specific moments that reflect that attitude of our hearts. So worship is our whole lives given over to God, but it is also specific moments, tangible actions which reflect that attitude of our hearts. And it's so important, friends, that we recognize that true worship, true worship holds both of these things together. Otherwise, we are just pretending. What what do I mean? Well, moments of worship, these actions, singing or, or, uh, you know, gathering with other believers for for times of, of prayer or worship, these moments when our hearts aren't truly given over to God, well, those are phony. God said through the prophet Isaiah, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. What is he saying? He's saying to the people of God, the Israelites, you gather together in these special festivals, these special moments to worship me, but your hearts are turned completely away from me. Likewise, a life that is given over to God that doesn't result in tangible moments of worship, well, that just doesn't make any sense either. Because if our hearts are truly given to him, that will spill over in these real moments of worship. Are you following with me so far? This is a very quick overview of what the scriptures mean when they say worship. What about this word, though, persistent? A life of persistent worship. Let's define persistent. It's an adjective. This is what the dictionary says. Three aspects of this definition. First, persistent means continuing steadfastly, especially in spite of opposition, obstacles, and discouragement. Secondly, it means lasting or enduring tenaciously. Lasting or enduring tenaciously. And number three, and I was surprised that this was in the dictionary, but it was. 
The third definition of persistent, the construction on York Road in front of Spencer and Sam's house. Can I get an amen for that? If you live, Lawrence is clapping because we were literally talking about that moments ago. If you live in the West End or the South End, congratulations. That's all I can say to you. Congratulations. That's persistent construction. That's what that is. Persistence is continuing steadfastly, especially in spite of opposition or obstacles or discouragement. It's lasting or enduring tenaciously. And so we value a life of persistent worship. So let's think in just a moment about how this story that Becky read for us illuminates this idea, this value for us. But before we do that, let's pause. Let's uh, take a few deep breaths. Consider how you're feeling. Know that God sees that. He cares. And we'll continue on. Jesus, for those of us here who have experienced the miracle of you opening our eyes to who God is, worship, our lives given over to you, is the only natural response. And so we say again, our lives are yours, and would a watching world notice in whole lives given over to you, but in specific moments of worship. Help us to understand that better. Hold it maybe a little more closely as we leave this place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's consider this story, this parable that Becky read for us. If you were looking in a Bible, you probably saw that header, that little subtitle that Becky read. Uh, the persistent widow. In this story, in this parable, parables, by the way, are just stories that Jesus used to illustrate something, to make some sort of point. In this parable, Jesus introduces two characters. The first is this judge, this local magistrate of some sort. And Jesus describes this judge as neither fearing God nor respecting man. Now, in our modern world, we might say, well, that's good sort of criteria for a judge, unbiased, right? But Jesus isn't trying to say that. Actually, he's trying to give the opposite indication about this judge. In, in Jesus' day, this was an indication that this judge lacked any sort of ethical framework for making his decisions. The other character we're introduced to is this widow. And widows in this day and age, lacked any standing in their society. The nature of her case, this widow's case that she keeps bringing to the judge, Jesus doesn't really tell us, right? He doesn't explain that for us. What we do see is that she is initially ignored, brushed aside. And Joel Green, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, 
sort of explains what should have happened next, what the listeners would have expected. Having been slighted by the judge, Green writes, the widow's role should have been that of the helpless, hopeless victim. Having been slighted by the judge, her role should have been that of the helpless, hopeless victim. Is that what we see from this woman? Not at all. Not at all. Jesus says she is persistent. We get this through the, the, the sort of thoughts of the judge who says, this widow keeps bothering me. This widow keeps bothering me. And commentators say that this word bothering probably isn't strong enough. The Greek word is kopos, and it means distress or like trouble. This widow is distressing the judge by how frequently she's coming and asking that her case be heard. It eventually, Jesus says, the judge relents, gives her justice, but it's not out of any sort of conviction on behalf of the judge, right? It's purely that he wants peace. He wants to be left alone, and so he gives her a judgment in the case. And then at the end of this story, Jesus presents sort of a two-part contrast. Jesus often did this through the parables, but here we get sort of this two-part one. So he says, if an amoral judge would do this for a person of no social standing, then think of how God in heaven, your heavenly Father, will respond to you, his beloved children when you cry out to him. He ends in verse 7 there. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. But then look at the end. If you have a Bible there, paper on a phone, look at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Kind of a haunting question, don't you think? And where does it come from? It's like, well, that felt like kind of a left turn, Jesus. To understand it, we have to go back to verse 1, the beginning of the chapter. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. But again, we feel a question. Well, why did he want to talk to them about that? What was happening that led him to want to tell them a story to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart? It's great when you're reading the Gospels and you just keep going backwards. Well, why did this? Okay, let me go back. Well, why did that happen? Let me go back. Why did he say that? Let me go back. Let's do that quickly. If you have your Bible, look in Luke 17. I'm going to read verses 20 to 30. It's not going to be on the screen, so either you can read along with me in your Bible, or you can just listen. It says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, 
Now picture this, right? He's answering the Pharisees, and then it's as though he sort of turns to speak directly to his followers. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look, there, or look here. Don't go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. How does this passage get us to Jesus wanting to tell them a story? To pray, not lose heart. Let's understand the passage we just read a little bit better. The Pharisees ask this question. When is the kingdom of God going to come? And the question reveals two assumptions. The first is that God's kingdom is a future thing. When is this thing going to come? It's in the future. First assumption. Second is that they will know it when they see it, or at least they want to. Like, what, what are the indications that we will know that this day is, has arrived? And Jesus' response initially to the Pharisees who've posed this question, and then primarily to his disciples, it teaches us something different about what God's kingdom looks like in its coming. It teaches us a few things. You'll see these on the screen. First, he wanted them to know God's kingdom wasn't just a future thing. It was already in their midst. And actually, beautifully, I would say, the Greek here is a little ambiguous. Some translations say, is within you. It's already in them, around them. And Jesus indicates that God's kingdom grows, it blooms, it blossoms in small and often unnoticed ways. But he warns them, specifically his disciples, that this would often happen alongside great hardship and difficulty. Right? He says to the disciples, there's going to come a day where you're longing for that final day, the return of the Son of Man, but it's not going to be there yet. At, fine, at times they would find themselves longing for Christ's return. But when that day was delayed, Jesus indicated, they might start to look around at those living normal lives with no thought of God. And that m- might start to seem really attractive, really lovely. Maybe we just kind of do our thing. To avoid this temptation then, Jesus tells them a story of a persistent widow. Start to see how these pieces fit together? See, we live in a world, friends, that is not all that different. 
And I'm not just talking about the world. I'm talking about us, the, the world that we inhabit every day. A world that is quite content to carry on without God. Quite content. Even many men and women who would call themselves followers of Jesus live daily lives that show little acknowledgement of God. I mean, we've done this at times, right? We go through weeks or stretches of time like this. And then there are sort of the religious folks who say they believe in God, but act as though that God can sort of be wielded through a few simple steps, this one program, saying the right prayer in the right way. Both of these, friends, are thoroughly modern ideas that, hey, listen, maybe there's a God, but he's out there, or he's back in the past, and we've got to make this world the best that we can, and we're going to do it together. And likewise, this idea that, yeah, there's a God, and here's how you get his favor, X, Y, Z. This sort of programming attitude. I remember a day speaking to my spiritual director, and I was talking about how I had been trying to progress through this Bible in a year reading plan, and my kids kept interrupting as I was trying to read, and I was falling further behind. And my spiritual director, you know, I was saying, how am I supposed to meet with God? My kids keep jumping in there. And Dave said, he said, maybe, this maybe, Spencer, don't see your sons as a distraction, but part of that pathway in that moment to meet with God. Reading your Bible, great. Continue, keep at it. But in those moments, maybe God just wants your son to be there with you and the three of us, the, the three of you to gather together. I said, that's nonsense, Dave. I got to do the reading plan. <laughs> I'm falling behind. Friends, this is not the God that the Bible presents. His kingdom, Jesus reminds his followers here, and we see it all throughout the scriptures. His kingdom is sprouting up all the time in the world around us and in us, if you're one of his followers, but often in places, in ways we do not expect. And in the areas that we long to see growth, we long to see fruit, maybe in our own lives, maybe in the world around us, things go painfully slowly. But then over here, something miraculous happens. And the temptation can be to throw up our hands and simply say, okay, I'm just going to live my life business as usual. God's going to do God's thing and I'm going to do my thing. But Jesus, through this story that he tells, invites us into something different. Stubborn, persistent worship. This starts by us putting our flag in the ground, saying there is a God and he is involved in the world around us. Today, as we speak, Karl Barth, a 20th century theologian, confronting sort of modernism in his own day, this idea that God is, you know, this idea of the past or maybe he's sort of out in space, but he's not really active in the world. He had this mantra, God is God. God is God. 
And a life of persistent worship starts with that as our drumbeat. And we say, you know what? If God is God and he's doing God things in the world around us, then we're going to celebrate what he's doing. Even when it feels slow, even when it feels small. And we're going to ask. And then we're going to ask again. And then we're going to ask again for him to do more, to continue his work in us, in the world around us. We're going to ask and ask some more. We're going to structure our individual lives. We're going to orient them around finding moments to come before God and say, God, you are God. And then we're going to come together like this, to sing, to celebrate, to pray, to ask God for more. Rene Padilla, a Latino theologian, said it this way, the experience of the Spirit is not a private experience, but an experience in which the personal and the social dimensions are brought together. Are you tracking? Worship happens when we're alone, walking through the woods, and it happens here, and true worship brings those together in this glorious jumble where all of life is worship. And friends, that requires persistence. And just so you know, this thing, this moment specifically that we're engaged in right now, this is a persistent thing. The church... Disciples of Jesus have been gathering for worship like this for thousands of years. In rooms like this, cathedrals with stained glass and in caves. In the sweltering heat, in the blowing snow, in times of war, in times of peace. This persists. We gather together to celebrate the God of the universe. You might be sitting here thinking, Spencer, persistent worship, I, I, I want that in my life. I do. I want my life to be characterized that way. And I have tried. I have tried to be consistent, to be persistent in meeting with God in my daily life. And every time I've fizzled out. Maybe you are thinking, Spencer, like I want this, but... As soon as I leave these doors, this moment is rich and it's wonderful, but as soon as I leave those doors, I've got emails, I've got things to do, I've got kids to raise, demanding job, life gets in the way. Or maybe you've tried, but then as you go through the months and the years, you look for progress, what's happening, and you don't see it the way you want to. And you've just sort of lost your will to keep at it. If you are in any of those situations, I want to give you one more definition for this word persistent. It comes from the world of botany, which every time we get into agriculture here in Guelph, you've heard me say this, I get real anxious. So any of you agricultural students, just pretend like I said this exactly right, okay? This last definition of persistent comes from the world of botany. As I understand it, a.k.a. as told to me by Wikipedia, plants, I mean, this part, I I knew this, okay, plants 
usually shed their leaves, flowers, seeds, once that normal, the normal function of those parts of the plant have been served. But certain plants have what are called persistent parts. These are parts that endure long after their primary function has been served. One plant that has persistent parts is one near and dear to my heart, Picea mariana, better known as the black spruce. I was a tree planter for two summers, and so I've literally put thousands and thousands of that tree in the ground. Picea mariana has persistent cones, so even after its cones have dropped their seeds, sometimes they live on on that tree for quite a long time. Why am I talking about this? Why is this last definition of persistent important? Jesus said these words in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. A little later he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Friends, our worship is the result of our eyes being opened to the goodness of God. And it was the work of Jesus on our behalf that first opened our eyes to that goodness. Amen? Beautifully, wonderfully, we are not simply flowers that bloom, seeing the wonder of God and then wither. Jesus holds on to us, pumping new life into us by his Spirit enabling us to worship through all seasons, through all kinds of weather. This is where a life of worship comes from. In other words, friends, if there's a truly persistent one, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, and that is good news. He loves us with an unfading love. So my prayer for us is that today our eyes may be opened afresh to that love that we might offer up new praise in thanksgiving to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, <clears throat> we want to be a people of persistent worship. And we just humbly acknowledge that many days this persistence will look like forgetting, <laughs> failing, but then coming back and trying again, meeting with you again. You who are always ready would we be a church who move through this world worshiping, constantly 
announcing that God is God, he is on the move, and we're going to participate. And most of all, Jesus, we thank you that you are the truly persistent one who holds on to us, whose love is never-ending. And so together we worship you now. Amen.